Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everybody, from an extremely windy California. It's one day, as everybody knows, before Joe Biden's accession um, and the uh, disappearance of you-know-who. Uh, the conversation in America is increasingly about what the Biden administration will do on, on, on the economic front. Janet, Janet Yellen, who, who's going to be his uh, key uh, economist in, in, in revitalizing the economy, wants to spend big. And one of the things uh, apparently that she's going to spend big on is full employment, how to get America back to work. Uh, and I'm pleased to say I'm, I'm working now. And the theme of the show is work. We have uh, a, a wonderfully erudite, interesting guest, James Sussman from uh, Cambridge via Namibia. He has a, a really important and interesting new book out called Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. Uh, interestingly enough, the book, which came out uh, late last year in the UK, has a different subtitle. It's the same book, A History of How We Spend Our Time. Um, James, you're an anthropologist. You're not an economist. Why, as an anthropologist, did you choose to write a book about work? Well, it's, a, it's, it's the right question to ask. I'll tell you, it's because when it comes to work, economists have always got things wrong. And, you know, in part, this reason why I wrote this book, and as you say, I'm an anthropologist, and I've spent most of my life living and working among hunter-gatherers in the desert. So, as you say, why am I writing a book about work? Well, part of it is, is that, you know, our assumptions about work, classical economics is a series of base assumptions about work. At the heart of classical economics is the problem of scarcity. And the problem of scarcity tells us that the reason that things are scarce is because we are creatures with insatiable appetites, with infinite desires and limited means. The truth of the matter is that the very people I work with, the Jinasi Bushmen of Namibia and Botswana, the Kalahari Desert, along with most other hunter-gatherer societies that were well documented in the 20th century, are living proof that actually we're not obsessed with, uh, we, we, we are all burdened by infinite desires, and that this is in effect a cultural affectation. So the reason I wanted to look at work was to basically start challenging some of these ideas, mainstream economics, and challenge them on the basis of evolutionary and anthropological history. Um, in a bizarre way, the idea that, you know, economics is founded on this problem of scarcity, the way it is so important, it is, in some ways, it's as bizarre as founding a system of government on the basis of a series of theological truths. Um, and so really, this is the point of the book, is to make that challenge, to make people rethink work 
and to make people understand it more as an actual observable phenomenon and try and make sense of it from that. So the science of economics is getting a bit of a bashing these days. Uh, we've had a number of economists on the show telling us why economics doesn't work. And as you say, as an anthropologist, you bring your particular wisdom. Um, there's a, and, and I hope I'm going to pronounce this right. This is a challenging term. The you Hoansi uh, people of the Kalahari. Uh, James, you've become somewhat of an expert on them. You've been studying them much of your life. What, what do these people tell us about the history of work? And, 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 and why did you choose to make this people so central in your narrative about work? Well, I'll tell you why. The Jhumasi, and that's the way to pronounce it. It's got a click in their name. Ju means person. Trois means truth. So basically, they call themselves real people. Ju Trois-si. The reason they're so central in my work is twofold. Uh, the first reason is that anthropologically, we now know that they are phenomenally interesting. They are genetically the direct descendants of the very first Homo sapiens in Southern Africa. We can now date back 300,000 years ago. They've got a distinctive genetic line with a, but, I mean, I won't bore you with the genetic, the genomic details of it. But basically, this is a population group that has stayed, at least uh, in terms of a lineage, in one place since the very first emergence of Homo sapiens. They've also stayed in that one place, living in a very particular way, using similar technologies throughout this period and living as hunter-gatherers throughout this period, which in a way makes them arguably, if you view the sustainability of a way of life, the endurance of a way of life as a measure of its sustainability and success, this makes them the most successful civilization of all time by a huge margin, 300,000 years pushes the pyramids in Egypt and modern capitalism all into the all into the dustbin of history in terms of scale. So are you speaking that, when you say success, are you arguing that on a, a Darwinian sense or in a cultural or economic sense? I'm arguing it purely on the basis if you say endurance, a particular way of life in a particular place. So let's take the example. No, you know, our practices tend to be fairly unsustainable in terms of various environmental constraints and so on. You know, nobody's betting that we are going to be around living as we are now in the same way in 300,000 years time. Something's going to give, something's going to change. The Zhongwasi and certainly their historical antecedents, and, you know, we can't judge too much about them from the present. But we know that these people lived in the same way, roughly the same way, same technologies, same broad environment, obviously with climatic changes for such a long period of time. So it's really endurance of, over time as a measure of their success. And that is that is the pure basis. So it's one measure of success. It's not an absolute measure. James, um, a few weeks ago, we had the... Uh... The, the Harvard uh, scientist Daniel Lieberman on the show uh, talking about his new book, Exercise. Like you, he went back to African practices. Like you, he's somewhat of an anthropologist. I don't think he's quite as professional an anthropologist as you. Um, I'm a little wary that we fall into the Rousseauan trap of idealizing antiquity, idealizing um these original stories about human beings a lot of people will watch this and say well maybe james right maybe these people are really successful in a sense that they're 
lifestyle has lasted so long, but they're kind of irrelevant. Most people have never even heard of them. Uh, the dominant economic system, for better or worse, is globalized capitalism. Should we be careful idealizing antiquity? I mean, uh, earlier, uh, earlier uh, late last year, I also had uh, Kermit Patterson on talking about fossil men and, 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 and our obsession with our earliest ancestors, Adi and Lucy. At what point do we stop fetishizing the past of our species? Well, let's be clear, we should never fetishize the past of our species, same as we should never fetishize our present either. Um, the whole value of understanding, the whole value about anthropology is really breaking down perspectives. You know, so the journey of going and living somewhere, in my case, with a group who would once upon a time be called the Stone Age culture, is that it makes the strange familiar and the familiar strange. It offers you a perspective through which to see yourself. It gives you a mirror where you can look back at yourself and make yeah, and begin to understand yourself. So it's not really about idealizing or making 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 anybody you know stand out as some kind of Rousseauian idol. It's about looking at life and looking at people almost as a phenomenon and saying, what is it that we can learn from this? So there's nothing to idolize about, you know, hunter-gatherer life, but there's plenty about hunter-gatherer life that they do better than we do. Same as there's plenty about modern life that we do better than hunter-gatherers do. So, for example, people always ask me, you know, they say, well, you know, well, the Jinguasi, do they want to go back to hunting and gathering? Um, and in many ways they do, but in many other ways they don't. If I was to go to Nyai Nyai now, which has been subsumed in this global economy. And for example, let's use something simple. If I was to say, let's take away paracetamol or ibuprofen, would people accept that? No, they absolutely would not. Would I be able to take away tuberculosis care and so on? But would I be able to entitle people to have the kind of peacefulness and engagement and time and space that they used to have? Then that they will certainly take. And what the key is for us now, as we start looking to a future which is entirely different to anything that has come before. You know, we keep looking at precedents, socialism, capitalism, old ways of doing things, new ways of doing things. We are in unprecedented times. And the challenge for us is to take on and learn what we can from our history, from the other ways people have done things, experiment with them and try and find things that work. So this is- I'm really surprised, James, you say we're living in unprecedented times because as, as an anthropologist, a historical anthropologist, you know we've been through this before. I mean, thinkers, well, writers, yeah. critics in the middle of the 19th century in, in the face of industrialization would said, well, we're, we're living in unprecedented times. What's so unprecedented in terms of the idea of work about the 2020s? Well, I mean, there's, there's nothing particularly unprecedented about the idea of work. I suppose you're saying I'm a long-term historian, so I am looking at it in, in the long term. We've been, we are in unprecedented times, largely because we're experiencing a period of global-level population growth, which is beyond anything that one could have reckoned on even a century ago or two centuries ago. We're dreaming on a rate of technological acceleration, which is, again, tied to that kind of level of population, which is again unprecedented. And we're also in an unprecedented position of actually being able to model our future relatively effectively. So a century and a century and a half ago, for example, 
doing a relatively accurate, you're complaining about the wind in LA this morning. And I'm not, I'm not sure how good the weather predictions are, but here, you know, even here in, you know, this island of Blighty, we actually have reasonably good weather forecasts now. We are able to be able to model certain impacts and interactions and be able to actually understand consequences of certain actions in a way that nobody has ever done before, which gives us a, basically a sense of the future, which is completely different. So we have this extraordinary new power in our hands and, and we haven't learned to adjust to it. You know, we keep expecting politicians and so on to show up with ready-made answers based on how things were done in the past. You know, we are now in an era of great experimentation. This is our obligation is to experiment and to chase, to face these things as if we are, you know, the early engineers. And uh, yeah, and, I, and that's one of the reasons I like the book is that you recognize that we are about to experiment with work. You, your, your book is a deep history. We can't get into everything. It's a fascinating book. It's a wonderful read and it's being acclaimed everywhere. I saw a tremendous review, for example, in The New Yorker. So everyone needs to read it. Let me take a couple of areas that particularly intrigue me from recent shows. We had both the environmentalist uh, Jason Hickel on the show and the kind of uh, arist almost aristocratic writer, Simon Winchester. And they're both, they're entirely unrelated, politically, culturally, in every sense, but they both talk about enclosure. And the great moment in Western history when the land was enclosed in, in the late part of the Middle Ages. In terms of the history of work, do you think that our relationship to land in that early capitalist period changed everything? Or uh, is there another moment that sort of, that launches, that sets the scene for the contemporary cultural and economic history of work? Well, I'd actually, I'd actually push it back even before that moment. I'd push it back all the way to the origins of agriculture. And this is, this is really the sort of one great virtue of engaging with hunter-gatherers and understanding, and you know, where I lived and worked in Namibia, basically you dealt with hunter-gatherers on one side, and then we had farmers on the other side who were looking covetously to the hunter-gatherers' land. Um, and you had two ex completely different paradigms of engagement with the economic world and the natural world. For hunter-gatherers like the Zhongwasi, their engagement with the natural world, they viewed the natural world as provident. And let me be clear, these were people who lived in a desert. It was not an easy neighborhood. If I was to dump you or anybody else with knowledge, you wouldn't be able to get by. But the Zhongwasi traditionally were able to get by by 15 hours work a week on the food quest. And they did so because they lived well within the limits of their environment. They didn't overexploit it. They had all these kind of strategies and balances, and it's part of the reason why they'd lasted so long there, um, which enabled them to use the landscape very sustainably. So they viewed the landscape as actually generous and giving, not harsh and difficult. Farmers, on the other hand, have to generate a living from the environment. They take, in a sense, what the role, a role of custodianship over the environment. Their job is to make the environment productive. Shinkwasi think that the idea is ridiculous that a farmer would make the landscape productive because the landscape already is productive. So it produces a very fundamentally different set of relationships with space. And, and this is very clear when you look at all the different hunter-gatherer societies, whether you're dealing with Inuit in the Arctic to uh, Aboriginals, in, uh, Aboriginals in Australia to um, Native Americans on the Northeast Coast and um, 
America, it's an entirely different way of engaging with the landscape and with land. And it is not based on this idea of property relations. It's not based on the idea of ownership. So, for example, Jean Tracy um, had very little time. People own things, but basically this was a society, you know, it was for them, it was almost like they lived in a vast Walmart. Everything was kind of free. So ownership, if I own something, yes, and somebody took it, it wasn't such a big deal. That it's interesting, a, uh, um, uh, James, that you, um, you you talk about this. Uh, Simon Winchester dedicated his book, and again, he's not a political leftist or radical, to Chief Standing Bear. Um, and uh, the, his relationship to, to the land and the way in which the land was taken away by the state. Um, the history of work is also the history of citizenship. The history of work and our relationship to the land is also about how we define our communities, isn't it? Well, to, to, a certain, to a certain extent it is. And that's, again, this thing, you know, the big pivotal moment was, again, that shift to farming. Before then, that was not really people... You know, people did not, hunter-gatherers did not define their relationship with land in terms of the work they did on it. As soon as you became a farmer, as soon as you started to modify your land, and that is really what farming is about. It is about trying to mimic the perfect environmental conditions to grow up whatever the sequence of crops is that you happen to depend on. So you almost, in a sense, assume the creative role over the landscape. It's a... you. You're, you're taking partial control over the landscape from the gods, in effect. And that creates a sense of ownership, you know, in the sense that it is something made, something created. And but it's, it's a, a collective ownership and it, and, and, it, and it extends over time, doesn't it? It's, it, it? It flattens the past, the present and the future in terms of these traditional notions of land and work. Is that fair? Well, it, yes, it, it does indeed. I mean, I'd, I'd say in a sense, you know, sort of one... You know, well, let's 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 use again. I'll use the Kala, the Kalahari example. When farmers came to take the land from Zungwasi, and you know, the Bushmen owned broader. So there was a whole group of them: the Zungwasi, the Kon, the Tui, the Kana, the Beti, the Tsa. There's a whole group owned all of Southern Africa, and they effectively were disenfranchised progressively over this of all this land over a period of four, five hundred years. And the justification was always that the Zungwasi did not own the land. Because the Zhongwasi did not farm and transform the land, therefore they had no ownership claim for it. Therefore, taking the land from them did not constitute any form of theft. Um, and in a bizarre sense, there was a degree to which the sort of Zhongwasi were uh, innocently complicit in the process, as were other Zhongwasi. So, for example, when the white settlers came to take Zhongwa land in Namibia, and it was a large chunk of it was taken by white Afrikaans-speaking farmers. Um, the Zhongwasi welcomed them on the land and showed them how to hunt and help them deal with the problem lions and all the things. And the next thing they knew, they were suddenly in whips and whipped and in chains and, and, and deprived of the land and then being shot for desertion of their workplace, which in uh, apartheid laws was perfectly doable. So it produces an extraordinarily different dynamic. And it's really about using this one, this hunter-gatherer perspective, as just a means to reflect as a lens, a prism through which to look at how we organize things and understand them. Yeah, James, your book is, is, is very erudite, but also readable. You, 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 you talk a lot about Durkheim, Marx, and traditional critiques of industrial society. We've obviously had a lot of those critiques on the show. They're very fashionable and probably correct. We had 
the contamination of the earth, a book uh, by a French um, historian about how the industrial age essentially destroyed the earth. In your view, in terms of your history of work, did the industrial age come close to destroying our souls? Well, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, again, uh, I, I wouldn't quite, say, you know, I, I, as an anthropologist, I'd probably actually say no. I mean, I'm fairly open-minded when it comes to how people organize their work. People, you know, humanity is this wonderful, strange collective. People have thought and behaved in the most extraordinary and bizarre ways. The problem with industrialization is, you know, it would be fine if we were able to get rid of any kind of suffering associated. The problem with it is it is deeply unsustainable. And that segues into a different kind of work, not just the cultural work, but the fact that work ultimately is an energy transaction. And the transition that we've been through since the beginning of the industrial age is effectively we've co-opted you know, millions of years worth of energy, which has been effectively stored. Now, ultimately, that was solar energy stored in carbon in fossil fuels and have released that and converted that into all sorts of other energies, whether it's living biomass in the form of living cattle and so on, or, of course, greenhouse gases, which are cluttering, cluttering up the atmosphere. And there are certain clear costs involved in that energy usage. And energy is used to do work. We have machines that do work. We, every time we've ratcheted up our capacity to do physical work, we have effectively ratcheted up our energy footprint. Now, to put that in perspective, I, well, I hope I can remember it. I did the calculation the other day. But effectively, our individual energy footprints are 250 times larger than that of RC our energy capture rates. And, you know, that's actually not somebody in LA. I'm talking about probably somebody here in Cambridge who cycles about a bit, little bit. But it's still 250 times the scale of a genoises. History and seems to be repeating itself in a, in a particularly tragic way, James, at the moment. You, you, you write, of course, about these nomadic peoples. And, and, and the, the economy seems to be returning to a nomadic kind of lifestyle. Uh, we had uh, Jessica Bruder on the show talking about her 2017 book, Nomadland, about this new precariat of people traveling around the country, living in their caravans. Here's, here's an example of a, uh, a new member of the precariat. The, the old industrial proletariat has been replaced by this precariat. Um, that's tragically ironic, isn't it? This return to a nomadic style of life of increasingly exploitative work where people work in Amazon factories or drive Uber or Lyft cars. Uh, how does this situate itself in, in your history of work? Well, this is really where I come in with the big economic critique. It sits itself right at the center and that we are in an era of such extraordinary abundance and providence. So if you go and live with the Zunwasi who viewed their environment as provident and abundant and only work 15 hours a week, Yet in terms of their actual energy footprint, their actual environmental footprint, and in fact, their simple use of resources, they were nothing like we are. So we have this extraordinary wealth, and yet we use it very badly. This is something that, you know, John Kenneth Galbraith said this in the 1960s, John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s. And we are now at a point where we have this extraordinary abundance that years of ingenuity, hard work, and strife have won us. 
And, and yet we are using it very badly. At the moment, you know, that very medicine that has brought us this prosperity, our hard work ethic, our economic models, is now at risk of making the patient sick. And so this is the critical challenge that we face at the moment, is how do we transition our economic norms and practices and behaviors away from those that emerged during the agricultural era to one that copes with the extraordinary energy expenditure that we have now. And that is a fundamental economic problem. And that is why when economists talk about, you know, our economy being shaped, our behavior, the economy being determined by scarcity, it is absolute nonsense. We live in an abundant economy, so it's you know to to organize our economy on the basis of a whole series of economic models created um, that emerged during the agricultural era to cope with scarcity. When we're in an era of such astonishing abundance, is just tomfoolery. And that is a world after capital, um, uh, James. Um, we had Albert Wenger, the Union Square Ventures uh, venture capitalist, on the on the show, uh, an old friend of mine, imagining how we can formalize that abundance. Uh, let's talk about strategies for that. Um, is, is this rooted in a, in, 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 in a rethinking of, of the very nature of, um, of our economic system? Do we, for example, need a universal basic income? Another issue we've dealt with a lot on the show, uh, one of its champions, Scott Santons, is an old friend. Is this the core of reinventing work? Um, I wouldn't say it's the core, but it's certainly the starting point. Yes. Um, I think the changes that we have to go through is something far more fundamental. And again, you know, the perspective shifting from a cultural model, a set of values, beliefs and ideas based on this fetishization of scarcity that emerged during the agricultural era, era takes a huge amount of undoing, takes a huge amount of transitioning. And we don't know how to do it, and in particular, given the kind of environmental constraints that we have. I think we know what the problem is. We're very good at understanding that, and we can do that. And we either, as half of us seem to, we either run away and deny it exists and pretend it's all nonsense, or the other half kind of demand that we do things instantly. We are in an era where we need to experiment. We don't have much time to do it, but we certainly need to do it. And is this and, uh, experimentation, um, uh, James, do we need to do a lot of it in association with new technology? We've had a lot of shows, again, and you write about this in the book, we've had a lot of shows about AI uh, and its role. We had Brian Christian on the show talking about the alignment problem. We've had my old friend Frank Pasquale talking about the new law of robotics. Can we revolutionize the nature of work by getting machines to do most of what we have historically done, especially the menial work, the so-called bullshit jobs? Well, I think there's certainly, you know, I think certainly there's a massive role there. You know, to, we're not going to wind back technology and you know, hopefully we're actually going to be better at using our energy resources and the application of technology. So there's certainly a whole series of change. And I think this is why the challenge, you know, I mean, I, I certainly don't, you know, the, the one thing one learned when one writes the history of work and energy from the beginning how little i know about stuff <laughs> i'm a complete you know it's like any great learning journey i now know how much i don't know um, that's what i that's 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 what i principally learned um, and this is why i keep pushing the idea of experimentation i think universal basic income is an experiment that absolutely must take place 
We might learn that it doesn't work as well as we can, but at the moment you've got some people who say, it's gonna, how is it gonna be affordable? What are its inflationary implications? I'm interested in it because what it might do is deflate the amount of value that we put into what you might call the energy-based capital, cash capital, and start making us think about and value different forms of capital, social capital, and so on. You know, it would be nice if, you know, somebody made a coronavirus vaccine just so that they could get a pat on the back rather than astonishing, you know, dividends from years of producing and updating, updating a particular way of engaging with RNA. You know, that is really what I'm interested in doing. And I think part of the problem is, is this fetishization in particular of scarcity, then this kind of valuation of everything on the basis of cash, which ends up really as a sort of proxy for energy and consumption and so on. There are ways of actually taking that back. You know, I would like to see our creativity and we are indeed born to work as a species. We are purposive, we are driven, we are engaged, but I would like to see that energy go into far more useful things. You know, I mean, if you think of all the astonishing intellectual and social capital that has been lost by great minds going and being derivatives traders rather than, well, let's use the example of the present epidemiologists or immunologists, and, um, you know, that is the kind of rethinking of capital that we should be engaging with at the moment. And I think that is where the interesting narrative of post the after capitalism is it's really after cash capitalism. We live in this era of astonishing abundance. If everybody actually looked after one another slightly better, we might be able to maximize the extraordinary potentials that we have and do work that actually benefits <laughs> kind of everybody you know i mean it's it's i you know i think we're in an extraordinary moment in time and one hopes um one hopes that this is how how it will go one hopes that we will you know one hopes you know today is a, a vaguely hopeful day i think in the united states it's, well we'll so have to see um let's end in a very concrete way james uh we had the the futurist the self-styled futurist mora guilen on the show He's written a book called 2030, and one of his visions, one of his dreams, uh, you know, using John Lennon, of course, imagine no possessions. On the job front, what should we imagine 2030? We don't want to imagine, I assume, no jobs. Should we imagine no bullshit jobs? Should we imagine more meaningful jobs, happier jobs? What would be your goal in 2030? It's 10 years time or nine years time, so it's in Silicon Valley terms, it's still kind of the distant future. What could happen over the next 10 years in order to make work the solution rather than the problem to human existence? Well, this is, I mean, this is, you know, when I talk, you know, people often engage with me about, you know, the post-work economy. Um, and I certainly think that this idea of work for monetary reward has uh you know I, I i think its days are ultimately numbered but i'm a post-jobber in a sense this idea that one has to this insistence that we have in society that somehow somebody has to contribute frankly actually we're we are so productive as a society our farmers are so productive in terms of food we are so productive materially that we have redundancy built into half the objects that we buy so that we dispose of them just to replace them so that we can be people in work and keep profits and growth going and so on and so forth. And what I'd like to be see is us shifting in a direction towards using our purposefulness for understanding and being responsive to benefit. You know, people talk about the market economy being a supreme adapter. 
The problem is, is that when a market economy becomes hugely capitalized, that capital begins to distort the need of the dense. So the fact of the matter is, is, you know, people say, well, look how quickly people have adapted to producing a vaccine for the coronavirus. And indeed, there has been that motivation. But the truth of the matter is so much value in our economy is distorted by being stored such huge bubbles in people's in people's hands that, you know, if somebody, you know, I can't bid against, you know, let's say um, Bill Gates when it comes to, you know, purchasing a work of art because the 10 million he will pay is peanuts. Whereas for me, it's nothing, you know, there's the other law of marginal utility. So I'd like us to basically be in an environment where we distribute our resources in such a manner that we maximize people's working potential and incentivize people to do things that have a genuine, I suppose, again, you know, I mean, I think in an old-fashioned way in terms of public good, but I like... Well, we, 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 we could have a whole other show about the the re um, the reinvention of, of the public. We don't have time. Certainly, if you want a bit of work in the future, you need to get to work on James Sussman's new book, Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. Fascinating, controversial, rich, a true deep history. Um, James, you are, and, 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 and I use this word carefully, stuck in Cambridge. You're, you're, you're out, of, uh, out of Africa for, for one reason or other, mostly COVID. So you're stuck in your room with your books and your old hunting material behind you. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book in these strange well, times? Well, partially, I was, I, I, I've been thinking, you know, I mean, again, this is, we, li we live in a strange time and it's, it would be great as an anthropologist, you know, I'm, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking and talking about magic in my life. Um, you know, magic is a big thing, whether it's hunting magic or spirit magic in the but there's certain times when science comes along and, you know, the book that actually I was thinking of, and it's actually a very well-thumbed edition, I can't even remember when it was made, is John Gribbin's Science, A History. And again, it's kind of one of those books which made me think the virtue of actually writing a big history in the first place is that it's just an astonishing journey through what this extraordinary process has been over the last 100, 150 years. It, that has given us the capacity to model the future and understand certain processes around us and be able to start making informed decisions based on evidence, modeling, and projection. And it's a cracking book. And it's also just good because it reminds you of stuff you probably learned in school, you know, but makes it seem a lot more interesting than it did back then. Well, um, Alan Turing, you're based in Cambridge. Alan Turing was another visionary talking about the, the value of education. We could have a whole show on Turing and AI. But James Sussman, I want to thank you, congratulate you on marvelous book, Achievement. And I look forward to having you on the show again because there's so much more to talk about. So have a happy and healthy uh, 2021. And I hope at some point you'll get back to Africa. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. 
or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.